0: Okay, uh, welcome, welcome everybody to a new episode of the Coffee Breakdown podcast. Today we have uh, an episode with uh, Maurizio Giacomini. Maurizio recently got his PhD from uh, PFL in Lausanne, and now is postdoctoral researcher in uh, York uh, in the UK. And uh, actually, so this episode will be about you know crazy theory and the numerical uh, methods. Uh, mostly related on crazy, fusion but... well crazy <laughs> <laughs> depends how you define it so we'll see uh, so well th- this is why you also are and also is here present I think to have a lively discussion so first uh, thank you Maurizio actually for your time and for your interest in participating at Ips uh, podcast right,
1: thank you Luca for inviting and hi all yeah.
0: Yeah so maybe you can start introducing yourself i mean we, we know each other actually from the university in italy but maybe you can uh, say how you got into this topic into fusion and what, what you are doing a little bit and uh, yeah
1: yes so actually yeah we worked together in the university actually study physics in padua and then i'm so i did to, to the phd in, in fusion but my interest Fusion energy actually dates back to um, to already high school level when I sort of started looking at. Sorry, yeah, yeah, it's really like a, a longer, uh, long way up now, and um, and actually, I was fascinated by by you know all these alternative uh, energy sources, and uh, already I sort of captured by by the what is now I mean a pressing issue. Um, and actually, started looking at stuff like you know solar energy, wind energy, and I came across a fusion energy. Of course, at the time, I didn't know anything about fusion, and it was sort of okay, sort of confusing, you know. <clears throat> so I decided to dig into uh, in details so or try to, to sort of understand. And um, then I, I came to the point where I say, okay, I really like to sort of know more about these and learn more about these. Uh when I ended up so then I when I ended the, the, the high school, I sort of decided to, to go to university and study physics. Actually, I wasn't sure about physics because my first show was I think more um um engineering or better energy, energetic engineering. But then mm-hmm. I, I moved to physics because I was um, um wanted to do something like more theoretical uh, uh, stuff and uh, like to have a, like a basic understanding of physics and and the plasma physics but of course then starting the throughout the university I I had the opportunity to pull some courses we were together actually in some plasma physics courses and then um, I got very interested in, interested in these courses and decided to do more so at the end of the university well we actually had the opportunity to do our master project within uh, Fusion. Well, yeah, uh, that was at IPP. It was great uh, IPP in, in, in Munich. So Max Planck Institute was a great uh, stayed there, And um, if you remember, Luca, we had to, to choose among different projects. And there were two projects related to Fusion. And one project was related to, uh, well, it wasn't Fusion. It was a CO2 conversion. Uh, and we discussed a lot of Mongols say, OK, which project would like to take and so on. And then I, I thought, OK, I, w- I want to do fusion, so I will keep one of the fusion. Then you decided to actually take one that was outside fusion. You you kept this to conversion projects.
2: Look as, look as a trader, that's all. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's why then I, I I liked what I had done, then I keep Doing that in
0: doing my uh, PhD and that was at uh, EPFL. In, in, um, it was not actually okay. So th- this yeah. is interesting. Sorry if I interrupt because uh, you started uh, and in a similar way. I mean already from bachelor and then master from uh, neutral beam injectors, right? And then you moved actually to the study actual machine, so the tokamak. So why did you decide to switch from uh, you know kind of fusion oriented to actual fusion type of machine?
1: Well. Yes, right. So, well, MBI is 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 still like fusion oriented because MBI
0: yeah,
1: was mostly applied to, uh, to fusion energy, to machine like in tokamak to to it plasma. Uh, but I decided to move more into the tokamak physics because I thought like okay, I want to learn more about tokamak. Because sometimes when you uh, work on MBI, so neutral beam injector, you you are sort of you can you can be a specialist of MBI, but without no, really knowing what is happening inside the, the tokamak, or or maybe you know, but but okay. not all the processes that are happening, and you are sort of a bit detached from what is happening uh, in in the machine. So um, that's why I decided to say, okay, I I know a bit of of NBI or uh, sources for MBI, et etc. But let's move to to look more at the physics in the in the tokamak and uh, and that's why then I decided to do PhD looking at actually plasma turbulence in the uh-huh. boundary of um, of tokamaks, um, and uh, and actually I'm still working now in uh, in tokamak physics, just moving from boundary to the core, but I stay essentially uh, in that um, in that field.
0: Okay, okay. Well, maybe we can uh, jump a little bit um, to that uh, like soon. Um. So okay. So can can you, can you explain us a bit what are these boundary of tokamaks and so on? I think well for Aaron, I think it's really clear. But I come from a different field, right? And also this uh, concept of scrape of play. Uh, I think yeah. I mean it's almost uh, kind of almost uh, it became basic plasma physics. But I think you can tell us a bit more about that.
1: Yeah. Sure. So we define the plasma boundary as the external region of of a tokamak. So I think a tokamak there are essentially we can divide divide the tokamak essentially in three regions. One is the core where the we have essentially uh the, the the high temperature and where fusion is is happening. Uh then we move toward the the edge and the edge region is a region of very steep gradients. So we have to go from the very hot core to the, essentially the boundary are almost I mean almost room temperature we can say so there in that region, we have we have a very large uh, density and to gradients, and then finally we have the external region that is a region where the magnetic field lines uh, intersect the wall. So it's a region where we have a sort of all the processes that involve the plasma-wall interaction, heat exhaust, etc. So the plasma boundary is a region that includes the this external region where the magnetic field lines intersect the wall that is called the scrape of layer, plus a bit of the edge. Well, the edge is the region where the magnetic field lines are still um, um, of the, in, on these uh, nested flux surfaces we need to talk about. But in the region, in the thin region where we have these very steep gradients, and the um, essentially this the magnetic surface that divides divides these uh, um, these two regions, essentially the confined plasma region to the unconfined plasma region, is uh, referred to separatrix. And mm-hmm. the separatrix is sort of something important, because there we have um, essentially the, the, the transport physics changing between uh, the plasma inside the separatrix and outside the separatrix. So Just def- since I'm, I will talk a lot about these plasma boundaries, so I want to make it clear the plasma boundaries really the external regions surrounding the core, which mm-hmm. sort of sets these um, um, these um, uh, ethics out for, for our about
0: okay okay and uh, you also have okay that, that's uh that's quite interesting and you all have uh, i mean the plasma that is there is actually different than the plasma that is in the core i suppose uh, and in which extent uh, actually
1: yeah so so as i as i mentioned there are essentially um at least some differences uh, um the first one is the um, topological difference so in mm-hmm. the core, the magnetic field lines are uh, um, on nested flux surfaces, so
3: mm-hmm.
1: essentially they they uh, don't intersect wall, and we the power transport there is uh, is sort of very very simple. Mm-hmm. Then, when we move the scrape of layer instead, there we have different topology, where topology means that okay, first the magnetic field lines intersect the wall, and this already change your uh, your parallel transport, yeah, yeah. and then second. We can have a, a fancy shape of our, our plasma in the shape of layer, and this is done usually to um, try to reduce the heat exhaustion, the heat flux to the wall. Um, we can have really like geometry which features like more what we have what we call X points, so more region where the poloidal magnetic field is, is actually vanishes, vanishing. Um, we can have. Geometry is very complicated, which involve more of these x points and and so on, or, or region very, um, very extended where uh-huh. the magnetic field lines are are um, move apart from from the plasma, so that we can sort of increase the the length of these magnetic fields, so that we uh, reduce the um, the heat flux going to the to the wall, uh-huh. and and the other difference is the or one other different important difference is the plasma temperature. So in the core, the plasma temperature, so the electron temperature, let's say, is uh, very high, uh, meaning that the, uh, the um, collision frequency is low, so the collisionality inside is quite low. Mm-hmm. While in the scrape off layer, the uh, electron temperature is uh, much colder, so it's, it's actually uh, much smaller than what we have in the core, and the collisionality is higher. So this means that uh, the plasma, in the scape-of-layer is more like a fluid, rather than in the core, where we see more like the kinetic oh, aspect, okay. So it's like more a particle aspect in the core, while in the scape-of-layer, we treat it as, as a as a fluid or something that is can be associated with to, to the fluid. Uh, oh, just if the I, of, yeah?
2: sorry, if I just want to jump in uh, here, because mm-hmm. maybe it's useful to take a little bit of a step back, uh, definitely that the... Um, edge plasmas are, at least to my understanding, getting a lot more uh, interest in the fusion community nowadays. So clearly there's mm-hmm. something there that it's important to study. and Maybe you can just uh, give us like an overview of like why that region is now becoming so interesting to study. Uh, what about it is important to know for let's say building a future fusion reactor or something like this?
1: Yes, right, you're right. and there's... That's actually a good point in the sense that fusion community now is, or well, recently start really looking at this uh, at this region, because there are s- sort of several issues associated with that. So first, uh, the first one is, uh, uh, and probably the most important is the heat exhaust issue. Um, yeah. This region is um, a region that where we essentially handle heat flux to the wall, uh, meaning that we want to keep the heat flux to the wall below. Technological limit of our material. And this is essential because we don't want to build a fusion power plant that there's very high performance and it's working perfectly. But then, we turn, as soon as we turn it on, then we suddenly burn our, our wall or our diverter region or damage mm-hmm. it and, and so on. So, that's a very delicate, delicate region. And we need to really understand uh, that. And this usually comes with the quantity that we define as the width of the scrape of layer. Mm. so the um, the wider is
0: very like simple question because there are already fusion machines right Uh, i think about jet i think about other machines around the world right so why then is it it important because uh, if you go to larger machine for example ether and so on you have to withstand uh, like a larger heat flux in terms of magnitude or why is it uh, important actually to exactly
1: exactly that's the point because well the reason why going to larger machine is actually because we want to have a, a fusion power yeah, so we yeah, want yeah, to increase the confinement time of our machine. And and one way is to increase the size of the machine. Mm-hmm. So the confinement scale, like the size, so we need to be larger machine to have a higher uh, confinement in the core. But on the other hand, this comes with higher power that we inject to the in the core region where there is also fusion energy happening, so there is also the, the fusion power there that is going to be exhausted to the escape of layer anyway. Yes, we can have mm-hmm. radiation in the core, but then some fraction of this power is going to be to go to be exhausted to the escape of layer, and that's why this is more an issue if we think about the reactor scale or or fusion power plants, because there we have large heat fluxes really coming to the to the escape yeah, of layer, yeah. and then going to be exhausted. So that's why this region is is very important. But It's not only the only reason. Another reason actually is is that we have to think about um, um, this scrape of layer in general this boundary region as a as a boundary for our course. Meaning that if we think like we have to solve these um, these, um, um system of equations, usually are partial differential equations. So if we think from a purely mathematical point of view, when we solve our equation, we need boundary conditions for this equation in the
3: course, uh-huh. yeah, and these
1: boundary conditions are provided by this scrape of layer. So what we have to do then is to tighten um sort of model as much as possible this boundary um well as better as possible this boundary region in order to get good boundary condition for our models that then in the work in the core
3: mm-hmm. um
1: where we use then this model for instance to compute the energy confinement time that we need to uh, predict performance of our machine so there are like but, interesting um, phenomena uh, yeah. happening in the boundary yeah. So,
0: sorry, but, but then I'm wondering, so all, all these uh, studies that started in the past, uh, studying, for example, transport in the core and so on, wh- what did they use as boundaries? Some sort of like fitting or some sort of like, I don't know. Uh, like yes, if I think so... I have to calculate uh, like particle density, what do we impose, like the flux that goes to the boundary? And uh, how do you take that into account?
1: Yeah, so, so in the past, uh, uh like modeling the core we uh, usually used uh, sort of simplified uh, picture of the of the boundary where okay. we say okay yeah. uh, we have a buffer region we don't really know what is happening in this buffer region but we know there are sink, sinks and sources of particles so we can sort of model very simply what is happening there and uh, try then to sort of decouple the boundary to mm. the core inserting simple buffer and these buffers can can help in uh, in sort of um, performing simulation of the core without really having to deal with the boundary physics mm-hmm. uh, but on the other end this is this comes with some limitation as you can imagine uh, for instance like complex ch- geometries are not really well captured by any buffer region yeah. or uh, other phenomena like plasma uh, wall interaction like new plasma um, neutral interaction and purity and so on might not be very well captured by these mm-hmm. uh, buffer regions. so, well, it's sort of working, but um kind of better if we um, we are able to sort of model together this, uh, this core and, um, and the band of the region. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. okay, okay. And you mentioned, I mean, there are, well, Aaron is much more expert, so I think I'm asking some dummy things, of course, but, you, you know, you have these turbulence in the core and tumors at the edge. Is there some difference, for example, of this type of phenomena? I'm not an expert, so I'm really asking out of curiosity. So what makes the turbulence at the edge like so special and so important to study?
1: Well, uh, well, let me say first that, well, tools that we use in uh, boundary and in the core, they are both like complex tools and both yeah. <laughs> equally important. So <laughs> yeah, we have to study and understand core turbulence as well as uh, the boundary turbulence, of course. Then um, I mentioned before that actually one difference is uh, is the collisionality so, yeah. um Since the boundary or the shape of the area is more collisional, then we can apply a fluid model or a two fluid models where we have mm-hmm. um, electrons and ions. And this fluid model is actually uh, simpler than what we apply in the core, where the collisionality is low. So we need to use a more kinetic model. It's not actually a kinetic model, but it's something similar to a kinetic model that we imagine that anyway, a six-dimensional uh, focal punk equation I need to, mm-hmm. um, to solve. So um, in that sense, this may, uh, makes the, the model in the core much more complicated than the one applied to the boundary. So um, that's why we, we, we were thinking about, OK, so let's decouple the core and the boundary. So we can address the, the boundary with a sort of simple model. And we can then couple to, uh, to other physics at play there. And uh, while the core, we sort of use all the machinery of a kinetic models or charokinetic models to, to try to get accurate uh, um, a prediction in the uh, in the core. So the, f- the first the first reason is that we sort of are now using different models applied to uh, different regions of, of the of the plasma. But um, of course, one can argue that in the uh, boundary we have kind of also sort of kinetic effects that are not well captured by three by models. So one yeah. can say, okay, why not simply simulating everything with a, a, a kinetic model, for instance? Mm-hmm. That, well, yeah, uh, that's something that uh, the fusion community is exploring uh, currently. It's quite complicated because as you can imagine, we go from region of very high uh, electron temperature, region of very low electron temperature, and this poses some challenging that are mainly uh, numerical challenging. Mm-hmm. I mean, we need to solve these, these equations in um, uh, reasonable amounts of time, um, and uh, uh, and then in addition to the uh, complexity of the chiral model, then we have add the comple- we have to add the complexity of the boundary, mm-hmm. uh, which means that in there we have, uh, as, I, as I mentioned before, uh, a complex magnetic geometry. Uh, then the neutral physics, uh, so the neutral particles that's just coming from the wall. Um, and then we have to deal with boundary condition to the wall, um and then all other other aspects which uh, make the overall simulation of of the full device uh, very challenging. And the other approach is actually the opposite. So try to start from the from the boundary, mm-hmm. try to improve the fluid models, uh, adding kinetic effects uh, in there. Um, for instance, like simply taking your Boltzmann equation and expanding and adding more moments to your equation. This is one possible yeah. approach. So essentially improving the freedom modes in there to try to capture the kinetic effects in the core. So one approach is going from the core to the boundaries and the other is from the boundaries to the core. These, of course, are two um, opposite approaches. They are both being explored at the moment, and uh, uh, but the, the actual main goal is the same as they want to be able to uh, capture this interaction between uh, core physics and and boundary uh, boundary boundary
2: physics. I also am interested in sort of it's a bit new to apply let's say even the concept of turbulence to the to the scrape off layer region. I mean most people have, at least in the past, have sort of assumed there's this kind of laminar like flow because of the open field lines and the the fast, let's say, direction, uh, parallel velocity of the plasma to the diverter region, to the targets, let's say. Um, And so people didn't really care about studying turbulence in that region. And so uh, one question I want to ask is, well, why, why is there suddenly an interest in, let's say, simulating or studying turbulence in this region? Did they find some, you know, through some experimental study or some theoretical study, that this is important here, or is it? Did, did people just say, "Well, we have these codes, let's see what happens"? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, um, um, actually, from the experiments, we know that uh, that region is um, we have a lot of turbulence happening in that region, hmm. uh, and turbulence is uh, is is essentially generating from um, from the region that is close to the apatrics essentially. Uh, and the uh, fluctuation in there are essentially comparable to the background uh, quantities of our equilibrium quantity. So um, it's definitely a, a very much a turbulent state that what we have in the in this scrape of layer. Hmm. Um, and then, as I said before, uh, one important quantity that we need to um, to estimate, we need to predict in in future power plant, is the um, the scrape of layer width, so the width of this region. And the width of this region depends on one end on the parallel transport, and as you said, this is, can be think of a sort of a laminar transport, and this is what had been, um, what is essentially simulated in, uh, in transport codes. but then it's obviously a balance between parallel transport and the perpendicular transport in there. And the perpendicular transport can be of, of two natures, so one is uh, sort of equilibrium drift-like transport, and another is turbulent transport. Well, there are regimes where turbulent transport um, heavily dominates over any um equilibrium transport or radiative risk transport and uh, in that case we if we wanted to um, capture correct, correctly the width of these of this region, we need to account for turbulent transport and that's why we need causes that are able to simulate turbulence in there and cause we can uh, use to um, to get to to get uh, an accurate estimate of this 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 quantity.
2: Yeah, that's right. Because I think like the old estimates, kind of or at least the old scalings for the lambda q, kind of predicted that like a machine like Eater will have such a narrow scrape off layer that it's it's basically a plasma knife that's just gonna cut right through everything, <laughs> um, which is obviously not good. So you're saying that if we include the effect of turbulence, then this this prediction gets a bit wider and could say something better for Eater's uh, performance. <laughs>
1: Yes, actually, this is a, is a very good point. Uh, um, there is a well-known scaling predicting uh, uh, this um, this scape of layer within a machine, and then if you ex- extrapolate this scaling for machines like uh, ITER or Timo, hmm. other other uh, then you end up on very thin uh, scape of layer, which is not good, you know, because this will lead to very large it- fluxes. But there were some some simulation, brain simulation, actually showing. That this is uh, this might be not true in the sense that turbulence in there is actually larger than what is predicted by by the theory of these uh, the q scaling, which is uh, actually based on uh, on um, a um transport. There, yeah. so when we consider the uh, the addition of of turbulent transport, we end up with the with the width that is um uh, uh, well it can be a factor even the factor five larger so it's not just a, a, a small addition it's actually a big factor there uh which of course is is a complete a new uk game changer if you want i mean in the design mm-hmm. of of eter or or um or um, or demon or other token so I think these uh simulation well these are very complex simulations because they are at the scale of a data scale so also very very challenging and very expensive from a point of view, but also showing very interesting designs in the sense that well we should care about about turbulence and we should uh, probably keep doing these these uh, simulation in an even more accurate way and uh, as much as we, as we can really to the the actual final aim will be to sort of modify the existing scaling so that we can account for um, for turbulence. Uh, and this is what I, I've sort of done this partially in my uh, PhD. we trying to sort of link uh, turbulent simulation to the scaling uh, low in the scrape of layer. But this was done in certain limits, uh, typically in the mode, so with some sort of some assumption and limitation. But despite that, still seems to work relatively well when compared to the experiment. So, so that's, that's interesting. Uh, but of course, one will need. We will need to sort of keep working on these and try to extend it to regimes that are more can be more either relevant or more relevant, and this is something uh, something important. But just saying that we can uh, neglect turbulence there because turbulence might might actually play uh, dominant role.
0: But uh, maybe uh, you know, c- coming back to the model, I would say you know, for me. At least from my experience modeling low temperature plasmas, even a uh, die-collisionality you know, the only grade would be if we would apply if we, if we could apply kinetic models in a computationally efficient way. In some sense, uh, you know, there are some people say you know the physics emerge from it. You don't have to impose the physics if you do kinetic models. However, if you do fluid model, you have to you have to put the physics yourself. So it means that you need a theory, for example, or some transport and so on. Is this? well-developed uh, actually, because it reminds me a lot about, uh, you know, trusters, for example, that, uh, you know, there is not a widely established theory on anomalous transport, for example, and so it's very difficult to have fluid models that are predictive at the end. So is it the same for tokamaks? So... Well,
1: fluid models are actually uh, derived from first principles, so this, these models are derived yeah. under the, the <laughs> limit of... Of high collisionality and essentially kinetic models in the limit of high collisionality <coughs> should uh, retrieve a fluid motor. So mm. the fluid mode is, is a limit of a kinetic model um, yeah. essentially in some parameters and one of these is the collisionality. So um, this, the use of these uh, fluid models actually um, they are actually called drift reduced Burgers' modes in in the in the one that we use to simulate the plasma turbulence in the, in the boundary. Uh, are actually well established and have been, have been okay, used okay. For, for years. So uh, we know that these are working uh, quite well, and we have time validation to experiment. So we are confident that these fluid models are able to capture um, like the, the main physics at play uh, there. Uh, now, the question is, um, and this is an important question, is uh, will these models still be valid in a regime such as the one associated to ITER or DEMO, where we expect to have large power entry to the escape of layer and potentially mm-hmm. large electron temperature and, and lower collisionality?
3: Mm-hmm. Well,
1: this is a good question. And uh, up to now, there are not a clear, na- a clear answer. Um, there have been to, attempts to to simulate this plasma with a fluid model. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, there have been other attempts showing that kinetic effects maybe Maybe more important in that regime and that's why um, there is a strong motivation of either extending the fluid model so that we sort of can include these kinetic effects in there without losing uh, too much the um the, the fact that we are looking at a simple model uh or the other way is to say okay let's go and, and simulate with the kinetic model everything uh, and of course this is uh, uh one might f- think that this is actually the best approach, as we were saying, to say, okay, we have kinetic models. So why do we need to take a limit at high collisionality and retrieve a fluid model? Mm-hmm. Just just apply kinetic, kinetic models everywhere. Uh, but the problem is that so apart from the the computational cost of these mm-hmm. models, that is can be primitively high, especially at machines like like ETA and demo. Uh, but also the complexity in in uh, in dealing with different physics at bay. Uh, in in boundary like as I mentioned neutrals or a complex uh, uh, magnetic topology yeah, to the true. interactions with the wall et cetera so there are all these uh, uh, these phenomena that one will need to sort of add to a kinetic model or or solve a kinetic models in framework framework where it is not the course so it is not something that we know mm-hmm. to do but it is something like more complex and we will need to to um to extend what we, we are doing now. Well, let me say that actually there are already kinetic codes able to simulate the escape of layer and the, uh, the edge yeah. in general. Um, so there are there have been some promising uh, work. Uh, and I think that this is really the next step. So we will have uh, yeah. uh, soon a simulation able to, to capture the, the core as well as the boundary region together. So this is something we are a- actually um already doing and uh, and there is good progress in that actually this
2: is a good question because uh you mentioned that you have to couple sort of the plasma code kinetic or or fluid to the neutral code which is probably usually a fluid Mm -hmm. i don't know if it's kinetic but at least in the like uh, sol ps or these these uh other edge models that aren't aren't studying turbulence it's just transport actually the coupling of those two physics is 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 not trivial right it's it's quite difficult uh, especially they operate on different time scales and then they have mm-hmm. different interactions and then you have to account for more than just collisions you have ionization and all these electron based interactions uh, so it gets quite complicated very quickly do you imagine that same problem getting even worse when you try to couple gyrokinetic codes, or is this sort of solved in some way? If you put them both in the kinetic description, then it's not so difficult. Um,
1: um well, I would say that is at least as difficult as it is now.
2: Okay, <laughs> so there's there's no there's there's no uh, it's still uh, at least there's no a uh, quick easy way to do it.
1: Uh. Um, well, there, there are again. Uh, there are different uh, approaches and different ways to to couple um, a plasma model to a new neut- to a neutral model. Mm-hmm. Um, so one one way is the one that you you mentioned is when using SolPS, for instance, uh, where they solve the, the plasma equations and then they couple these plasma equations to an external module that is provided by different codes, so typically Iron or other code uh, able to solve the uh, essentially, the dynamics of neutrons using, for instance, Monte Carlo codes, or can be a different approach, like using the fluid neutrals model, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, there is a really a physical coupling between the two codes. So, one is doing the plasma equation, the other is doing the uh, the neutrons equation, and then times to times they exchange information and then can advance the physics. Another way will be to uh, take the neutrons physics and embed embed it into a plasma, plasma model. Uh, this is an Another approach is actually um, uh, an approach that still uh, you can still you can still exploit uh, the different time scale of the phenomena associated with the plasma turbulence and with the uh, the neutral dynamics because it is actually happening a, in, a, in a different uh, uh, time scale the neutral time scale is usually much slower than the turbulence time scale okay. so mm-hmm. and of course we don't want to solve the the neutral dynamics uh, um, in the same time frame of the plasma dynamics, because this will be like over-solving the new dynamics with a lot of, essentially, resources just being wasted, while there is no real evolution of neutrous quantities. So uh, this decoupling is always there in any way. Uh, but I mean can be implemented in a very different ways, it's just that I want to mention. Uh, so when we go to kinetic models then, we have to think of, well, we're already solving a very complex equation. Uh, on time scale, that is of course the one imposed by turbulence. and then it will be to to take these uh, neutral models, it can be kinetic models or fluid uh, three uh, neutral models, and provide anyway some additional sources to our kinetic equation. So mm-hmm. the idea okay. I think will always be to keep the two things uh, well interacting, but never solving them within the same the same time frame yeah. to avoid actually as I said oversolving. The, the neutral dynamics and and exploiting this time scale uh, separation and then we have another time scale even larger that is the transport time scale. Transport time scale is actually much larger than turbulence. So we are talking about uh, order of magnitude difference in time. Uh, so meaning that when we apply our turbulence code uh, can be turbulence code in the, in the escape of layer or can be in the core, we are never able to get to the transport scale because this is simply too expensive. So what we actually do is to, to study turbulence and uh, um, understand transport and predict fluxes, etc. But never self consistently evolving profiles in a, in, a, in a time in the transport time scale. So profiles can still evolve because of turbulence. So we can uh, simulate how they will relax, maybe because of turbulence, and and uh, uh, what is then the impact on the heat fluxes. But then evolving a food profile on a, on a transport scale is is simply to. Uh, expenses so there will be another an additional coupling where we actually um, couple a turbulent code to a transport code in
3: uh-huh. this
1: way turbulent codes will actually provide fluxes and then the transport code will, ta- will take these fluxes from turbulence code evolve at transport scale and then inject them back the profiles to the turbulent uh-huh. codes and so on so and this is something that has been proved to be quite efficient and to work to work relatively well yeah uh-huh
0: yeah yeah, this is common also in low temperature plasma so typically we have what we call the gas flow dynamics model that can include the turbulent transport of the neutrons and then it's coupled to a plasma model in fact there is sort of much uh, lower time steps in um, fact or you can even couple the dynamics of ions and electrons depending on the plasma you have so it's it's interesting anyway but can you, like back to the coupling like you also have to couple probably I don't know. So do you have to couple the core and the edge? You said yes because you have to provide boundary condition. But do you need the really a coupling of the model? You or you can just run the model of the edge and the output that you get, you use it as input for your core model. So okay.
1: yes, that's actually. An you need point. like dynamic
0: so, uh, coupling.
1: Yes, exactly. So. Uh, there is one attempt at least that I know uh, coupling uh, um core code to a, a boundary code. and they and this coupling is really done as you as you as you said physically. So we have one core evolving, one code evolving the core and another evolving the boundary and then they exchange information. Yes, this is one one um, uh, option. Uh, the thing is that when we do this um, this coupling, we have to be extremely careful in capturing the interplay between the two. So let's imagine that we have um, um, a region that is very close to the, to the so the region the core that is very close to the boundary, where we have steep gradients in there and we expect to have a lot of turbulence. Now, this turbulence goes to the escape of layer and uh, is generating in the boundary. So now the boundary mm-hmm. core must see the turbulence coming from the core oh, and then be able you to evolve vector, the transport yeah. in there. So, what we actually refer to the known locality of transport. So transport is actually generated from yeah. turbulence generating from uh something else, and uh, somewhere else, and then it's just convected to another to another region. Uh this is something extremely challenging because you have to deal with sort of all these buffer regions in order to to be able to mimic well the effects of boundary codes in the core in the core codes and vice versa, in the boundary code, you have to Model what is happening in the in the core. So um, this coupling, I mean, there is at least one attempt, I know, attempt that I know, uh, and they I think they've been, they managed to do actually this, this coupling, uh, but that was extremely challenging, and uh, also motivation for doing this uh, full token simulation or try to actually simulate both the core and the, it seems like, now it seems like simpler, uh, as we have all the ingredients there, just one code, and we hmm. um, we know how to how to then couple the two things since they are coupled within the the code itself.
0: Okay, okay, that's uh, that's good. Also, another concept we have, for example, in our community, is uh, scaling. Because sometimes you have these reactor like, quite big, and you have to solve maybe a kinetic. You need a mesh resolution very, you know. So then the computation is very heavy. So and. Um, so typically what people do in our community is just to scale, to reduce the dimension of the size, but keeping kind of the same geometry. But it's not clear actually, if the physics is also preserved. So this is also a question. So is it something that you do as well when you do like kind of full, it's like a mini tokamak? <laughs> or, or do you actually simulate the full dimension?
1: <laughs> right, right. So so I know, yes. Um, uh, well, the concept of scaling, I think is, uh, at least in plasma physics, uh, is a bit everywhere. Mm-hmm. And um, the thing is that uh, uh, having a scaling is um, uh, well, it's very, very powerful because we can sort of uh, study even the experiments. I mean, we can study oh. uh, an experiment that is at a small scale, and then just say, "Okay, now I want to extrapolate it easily to larger scale." Mm-hmm. So before even running the experiments, I sort of know what is going to happen just using the scaling. So scaling are very powerful in that sense, and. Uh, uh, fusion communi- community and plasma uh, physics community in general, they uh, really, um, really like like having scaling. Uh, but of course, there is also the the, the question you, you are saying uh, that is a scaling. Can okay, scaling can be applied essentially uh, everywhere at every scale? And um, and that's a, that's a problem because when you do a scaling, uh, usually you, are, you assume some uh, some model in there. Uh, and these models come with some approximation. And the, the validity of the scaling is uh, heavily uh, linked to the, the approximation that you use to derive the scaling. So the first things that you need to check before applying the scaling is, is to ask yourself, are these approximations still valid at larger scale? Because it might be that actually they are not valid. So you are breaking some approximations so you can't really apply, apply the scaling, even if sometimes one may be tempted to say, OK, I want to apply it anyway because I don't have any other way to do, and then so let's apply the scaling, and let's hope that things will, will stay the same. But yes, driving scaling is actually something uh, that the community is uh, mm-hmm. done often, and can be scaling, for instance, drive from experiments, so we have different experiments, different scale, and we just fit these on a multidimensional parameter space, or can be scaling drive from theory, for instance, first principle, uh, scaling. i I mentioned before scaling of scape of layer width. There are a bunch of scaling for for that and uh, and um uh, and this interesting because Aaron before said, well, uh, this scaling predicts a very thin scape of layer for a machine like ether, but then then we run simulation and we end up with a uh, width that is much larger. So obviously the scaling seems not to work. So what is going on there? And actually there are some approximation that seems not to work very well at that scale. For instance, this is just an example. So uh, scaling are very powerful, but we need to be, to be careful with with not extrapolating beyond the validity yeah. of the approximation done to drive the scaling itself. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is very interesting because it's also uh, basically the core of modeling is not just uh, running codes; it's not just you know making weird or very expensive calculations. You also have to take into account the approximation that you put in your model. Right, and the validity of those. Uh, so it's it's very very interesting. Okay, uh, maybe well, uh, let me uh, add
1: actually is also when you when you so when you actually go from your full model, uh, and you derive the scaling. Usually you have to do some approximation. So it's not like okay, let's have a scaling out of the kinetic uh, theory. So mm-hmm. usually you have to simplify your model. And by exactly. you simplify so... your model? You you add some approximation in there. So
3: mm-hmm.
1: uh, it's something that like okay, it's not like running a full kinetic simulation. Now is sort of, okay, let's reduce the model, let's try to do something simpler. I can work on analytically, for instance, and then derive a, a scaling. And uh, in that derivation, there are approximations that are important and uh, and these approximations must be then checked mm-hmm. when you extrapolate your, your scaling.
0: Okay, okay, okay. I do not Do you have other questions, maybe on the, like physics uh, fusion part, uh, <laughs> <laughs> curiosities? <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, I think there is still something that I did want to to mention to you uh, that I think you mentioned earlier while we were talking another time um, about the the density scaling limit. Right, this is something that oh, you yeah, came across yeah. in your work um, that you found that by calculating the turbulence in the in this edge slash scrape off layer region that perhaps this density scaling that we used to apply can be sort of over overcome or surpassed. Um, so maybe you could explain a little bit about that uh, to us.
1: Yes, sure. So um, let me first explain what, what density limit is. Uh, so density limit is actually, well, as I say, the, the definition is a limit on the, on density we, uh, we can achieve in a tokamak. So this limit has been around for more than 40 years. And uh, since first experiments, uh, physicists realize that actually there is a, a sort of maximum density, and we cannot go beyond this density. Otherwise, we have uh, what we what, what we call disruption. So we actually lose the plasma current, we lose our plasma, and uh, uh, and this is not good. And we have to avoid disruption, especially at large scales. So um, there have been a simple scaling describing the density limit uh, around for, uh, for as I, as I say, the 40 years. And in this, uh, it is a very simple scaling, saying that the maximum density can be achieved is essentially proportional to to your plasma current. So, higher the plasma currents, higher the density can achieve. So, since then, um, this um, phenomenology of density limit uh, is um, related to sort of some energy activities that then lead to disruption. Um, The community uh, first uh, thought that actually this density limit is set by core conditions. So mm-hmm. it is, must be an MHD limit, so it must be something related to the core, potentially to the radiation of the core. Well, there have been some, some theory building on this, uh, but recent experiments actually show that we can uh, overcome these density limits in the core by, for instance, injecting pellets. We can have a very big profile, and we can go beyond the, what is the, uh, the the empirical limits of density limit tried by Greenwald, so we can exceed this density limit uh, by, for instance, Jack Peles, and hmm. from experiments we actually uh, see that the limit is rather imposed by the edge, by the boundary, and not the core. So, meaning that boundary physics is definitely important for the for density limits. So, explain uh, now based on that. We actually there are two different, well, two main different uh, ways we can think of a limit to the boundary. One is the radiative limit, so it can be still something imposed by the boundary, but from the radiation. So. We are, as we build up the, the density profile, we're actually injecting more neutrons in there, so there'll be radiation. And this radiation will make profile collapsing. And then, as profile collapses, we have all these MHD activities coming in, and then a disruption.
3: Hmm. And the other
1: way is that actually, as we build up density, we increase, for instance, collisionality, we increase the neutron interaction, and so on, and we have increase turbulent transport. And why we increase turbulent transport? our profiles will just decrease until they collapse. They collapse, And then uh, we have all these MHD activities again uh, appearing. Well, so what we've, we've done is to uh, follow the second approach. So start from, from a turbulent model, able to describe uh, uh, transport at high density, and try to see if there are regimes where we can have these profile collapses. And we found from simulation that this is, in, this is possible. And there are mm-hmm. some cases we can actually make profile collapse in just increasing turbulent transport in the age. So we were able to uh, derive a simple scaling, so analytical scaling uh, out of these based on turbulent transport. Uh, and we actually found that this scaling uh, was working very well when compared to experiments, compared to different tokamaks. And we actually uh, saw that this was doing a, a good job. Uh, and um, this scaling is kind of sort of similar to what is the empirical scaling. So the main dependence is still on the plasma current. So higher plasma current, higher the density we can achieve. But in this case, the density is the density at the edge, and not the density in mm-hmm. the core. Yeah. Uh, but we have an additional dependence, important dependence on the power. And this is good news because we know the power is going to be higher in ITER uh, ether and demo. Mm-hmm. So we expect therefore to actually have an higher density limit, which means higher we can achieve higher density in the core and therefore higher performance for fusion. Right. Um, well, this uh, um, actually, if we do a simple estimate and considering ether parameters, it ends up that actually then ends up that the uh, the density limit in ether predicted by this scaling is about a factor two larger than the physical uh, scaling. So it's, it's a,
2: wow. Okay. Two, two times. Out. Yeah. I was yes, not expecting that. that. Yeah. So
1: that's that's good. Of course, again. One can argue uh, and question the validity of this scaling at iter scale because it is based on some approximation that are valid for present day tokamaks. But you know, as we move to ether, uh-huh. again, kinetic effects might be important. There may be other effects, radiation can be important as well, mm-hmm. and so on. So, when we have this scaling, uh, there are also other scaling derived on, on sort of similar approach and so on. But then the main question is always okay, are these scaling? Or can this scaling be safely applied to ether and DEMO? Well, yeah, this is still a, a question, and uh, we hope we will be able to solve this question at least uh, based on, on simulation.
2: Right. So there's still a risk that there's another physical phenomenon that makes the limit, let's say, lower than two times. Right. Like it's, it might be closer to to the to the limit predicted by Greenwald. Um, with these other phenomena but I'm also interested then like did you identify let's say the type of turbulence that causes this type of density collapse um that occurs from the uh, from your simulations in the edge is it something is it a type like a, a mode of turbulence that is well known within the turbulence community or is it a completely new thing
1: no, it is actually a well-known uh, mode, and it is a resisting mode. It's what is called the resistive ballooning mode, essentially. It's a typical mode that we have in the boundary of uh, of uh, Okamak. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see it in different uh, machines, different sizes, and so on. And it's essentially uh, due to resistivity. Uh, it's a mode see. that is um, driven unstable by resistivity. Uh, okay. So this um, is
2: why when the density goes up, it, it it gets more uh, let's say unstable. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So mm-hmm. actually, uh, as you increase density, you increase the collisionality. Then there is also feedback on the temperature going down because when you increase the, de- the density, you actually do by fueling. For instance, you also decrease the temperature, and this increases the collisionality. And transport uh, driven by resisting ballooning modes is proportional to uh to the, the collisionality, so higher collisionality. Essentially, higher turbulent transport, and, and this is why we have this feedback mechanism that can be um, um, at play. And uh, uh, when we sort of hit a certain limit, then you start uh, your transport is so large then essentially you you see a, a cooling of the entire band region, and this comes with a, a change in your current profile and triggers the MHD activity. So we were able mm-hmm. to link this to the well-known uh, turbulent regime. But I would like to say also that, well, this is what we found in our uh, simulations, and what we also think, uh, well, and the, what we have considered to derive our model. But actually, uh, there are also other models saying that there might be uh, also another other types of instability depending on the regime we are looking at. For instance, the role of the electromagnetic effect is still uh, very debated as uh, our. Uh, people say that electromagnetic effects may be actually important there, so we should also retain these. While what we see also in our simulation is that electromagnetic effects are less important. So you know, it's it's mm-hmm. all a, it's still a, a topic of of um in under development, and there have been still a lot of work we are doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and definitely. This, this
0: depends on power. This can be tested experimentally as well, without going to ITER, for example, or.
1: Yes, it it has been tested. Yes, has uh, been okay. Uh, this experiment, yeah, this was af- actually one of the key dependence that we're going to test since given the importance. In, oh, okay, uh, okay. Yeah, in predicting the for yeah. future tokamaks. Yeah. Okay.
0: Okay, uh, very, very cool uh, actually. Maybe, okay, we can end uh, the topic, the discussion. It was very intense, uh, at least for me, you know, very new, a lot of <laughs> new concepts. Uh, I'm still. Yeah, but very, very interesting. But very interesting. Very, very interesting. No yeah, uh, very interesting. It's a interesting. totally new
2: field. And I'm, I'm also interested in learning yeah, a bit yeah, more yeah, about yeah. it. So. Also, I'm Thanks. really glad
0: that uh, this edge uh, part is becoming more and more popular because there are a lot of atomic molecular processes that are relevant. Plus mm-hmm. uh, sputtering of uh, material and so on, uh, radiation as you mentioned. So it's uh, it's it's really connecting different fields, I would say. Uh, so there's a lot of interesting physics. So uh, then, Maurizio, maybe as a last topic, uh, I, I remember like you mentioned, you did some also teaching and supervision of students and so on. And you actually enjoy particularly this thing. And uh, I also did, uh, to be honest, it's, it's really something that gives value to your PhD or to your career as a researcher. And uh, so w- what do you uh, think about that? So, so how do you approach the supervision of students? So when a when students come to you, how do you define the project and so on? So do you have ideas overall? Do you adjust the project depending on the student? Uh, it's a really general question.
1: Yeah, right. So, so like I say that I, I really enjoyed supervising students and doing my PhD, and I'm still doing to um, now as a postdoc at the University of York. Uh, to this is something that I like. I like it for several reasons. Uh, usually, the uh, what I do is to define a project for students, or they think about the project. And they try to to make this project as clear as possible. Uh, and then of course, when the the student uh, comes then we discuss about the project and then if uh, he or she has sort of likes to do something different or like different or more or less, et cetera, we can adjust together the project to make uh, it more suitable to the student because then in the end it's a, it's a student student project. so we uh, always try to agree with the student and on the project before, and uh, of course, then the, when we define a project, uh, we are we we never know how it's going to be at the end because it's still something that is research. So I don't have an answer. It's just okay. There is a project. Let's do a project, uh, or let's see if the student is uh, is able to come with new ideas, how to solve uh, problems, etc. But in the in the meantime, there might, might be other issues coming in, or maybe, for instance, more difficult than what we thought at the beginning, or or more e- or easier, and therefore we can do more, etc. So the project is sort of evolving uh, depending on the progress that, that the student uh, yeah. makes throughout the uh, the period. So yes, it's, it's an evolving project. Yeah.
0: This is something I sometimes uh, you know find uh, difficult. So how much autonomy you give uh, to a student? And how much you try to guide the student with a sort of predefined uh, research questions or tasks that he or she has to do. You know, it's it's not so easy. In my it opinion. is not
1: easy. It is not easy. Well, and uh, that's why I think that even uh, I, that supervising a student uh, is something good for us to learn. First, yeah, because we, we can learn a lot from. From from this experience and from of course from a professional point of view, but also from a personal point of view, like interacting with the student, might come with some challenging that we have to face, and and this uh, this is something that can really uh, make you then a, a better uh, person and more than the better physicist. So this is actually something very uh, very interesting. Uh, well, at the beginning in the first phase, uh, I always try to guide as much as possible students so that um, they can. Uh, they can uh, build on on some baseline task okay. or or something that that can use them to to explore more difficult stuff, etc. So I try to guide the students as much as possible in the first phase, and then um, I do the opposite in the second phase. Try to give them as much freedom as possible so that they can explore what they like more, and they can have new ideas. They can even modify the project as they like. So giving them a lot of freedom because I I think like okay. In the end, this is their project, so they, mm-hmm. I think they should be able to, uh, to decide what they they like more. And, uh, but of course, this also depends on the student. So if the student is want to work, work a lot in, in autonomy, then okay, that's good. Just keep an eye what he's doing, but then let's give uh, they them the possibility to work in autonomy. If the student prefer to interact more, because they feel like, okay, depends on the character of the student. Then, okay that's also good because interacting with the student you can learn you can for mm-hmm. instance discover new issues that you uh, didn't didn't think before so at least for me it's more like sort of like an evolving uh, process i don't know if for you guys is the same but i would say that for me it's really an evolving uh, process uh,
2: yeah Oh, well, i do have to say like on this topic that while i also love having students and I I love have supervising different projects um I'll just sort of play the devil's advocate here and say that if, from a supervisory point of view it does take a, a lot of time, time yeah. and effort and consideration for even just a single student and I know some professors have like you know multiple like 10 students under them and it, it, it gets very demanding in time so how do you how do you balance that right the amount of effort that it takes to make a good student project and make them feel like this is their project and they have uh say in in uh what that comes out versus you know balancing all of your own obligations uh, as well
1: well uh, well, it depends on the number of students. Uh, Ten is really a lot. <laughs> right, yeah, no, I know, but, uh, but even even faster. for one, right? Like, it
2: is still a, a large amount of time. Yeah,
1: yeah so, usually tie, they're tied, not more than two students at the same oh. time. Actually, like, one is, is perfect, two is still good. When you go above two, then, at least for me, it becomes sort of difficult to then
3: mm-hmm. keep
1: doing your work. And then I tie that, but that, that as, you, as you said, it's very difficult because you have to your work just to follow the students, and yeah. And then I also try to combine what I'm doing to what they are doing, so that hmm. not something completely separates that I have to sort of keep jumping from one thing to another, but can be some, some project is an auxiliary project, something that I want to explore by myself, but didn't have really time to do that. So OK, so let's define a project, have a student, and let's they, they sort of work together at least for as much as possible. And then uh, try to keep I don't know the project uh, uh, within um, within what I have to do so that it's not departing too much. But of course, that's I agree. I mean, uh, it's a time involving supervising students is sort of time involving. And um, but I well I think I still like doing that. So I. I mean, I agree.
2: (laughs) It's a rewarding process, right? Like the amount that you get out of it is is usually worth the effort. But I I also know, let's say, other um, PhD students when I was doing my PhD and even professors or or senior staff uh, researchers who kind of, you know, shy away from taking on students due to the amount of time it takes. And so it's a bit unfortunate because, that means that there's less opportunities for students but also i can see their point of view that it is it is, does take a lot of time right so is it is do you, do you think that there is a way to kind of um let's say bridge that gap um to to or are there just certain people who are okay what do you say um motivated to have students and then others that just don't right and that's okay too, <laughs> right?
1: I think so. I think there are some people that like more having students and others that prefer to work by their own and not having students. And I think that's okay. I mean, as long as we have both in the community, mm. that's perfect. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, then uh, supervising a, a, a master's student project is uh, something, or a, stu- a student project is really, uh, then supervising a PhD student is another story. Mm. Right. And uh, I think there is much more evolving, and uh, and uh, I can I can see that as uh, really I mean if you think about okay I want to supervise a PhD student project then you really need to I mean have in mind what, what the student is going to be doing and uh, and this I I think is very much evolving and so let's say that even if if you supervise a master student is still evolving but some extent uh, I mean uh, it's limited in time and uh, if. I mean, it's becoming too much time-consuming. You can always try to reduce the project or uh, try to give the student more freedom to work on, etc. But if now is a PhD student project, there you need to to stay there until the end. And uh, if there are some issues, well, you know, you have to solve them with the student. There is no way you can you can yeah. escape from these. So
3: mm-hmm.
1: I can also see the point of some uh, perhaps uh, more senior scientists. Uh, that uh, want to shy away from, from that because it's like okay, that sounds like can be can be sort of scary and and uh, I mean uh, and uh, very demanding depending on on the evolution of the project and this is a, a multi year project so you never know what is going to happen.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but in in some respect, this also applies to teaching, right? Because uh, you can think. I mean, when do you define that? Uh, this is worth the time that you are spending and uh, the effort and so on, and it's not too much or is not distracting you too much. So it's difficult to set the boundary as a, for the number of students, uh, two, three, and so on, or I spend this amount of time per week. I think also for teaching is, is very difficult, right? So, do you think it's, it's worth the effort or, uh, or not? And in which extent?
1: I think there is no clear boundary. I mean, it really depends on people. I, yeah. I guess it's something personal. Um, I I know some people really they don't like teaching and they consider teaching as a completely waste of time. Uh, and uh, I'm okay. I mean, I like teaching, so I like to teach and uh, interact with students and it's something that I enjoy. And even if I'm maybe using some of my time not doing research but teaching, mm-hmm. well, uh, for me it is, it is a good it is, it is a good uh, way to sort of grow personally. And uh, I I think that the time I spend teaching and supervising students you know, is not a waste, at least from my opinion. In my opinion, is not a, a waste of time. Because I'm always learning something. Um, well, I'm subtracting time to research, I know. But um, I think something really personal. So I don't know, guys, what do you think about teaching? But I, I really like that, and I, I think I can, uh, if I if I have the opportunity, then I keep doing that in the future
2: as well. Well, there's a there's an interesting thing sort of like floating around here in Eindhoven, but I don't know about the rest of Europe, okay. is to sort of redefine the metrics of defining like what is a good uh, researcher, right? Uh, there were some ideas that they should include the number of students you you mentor, supervise, or classes you teach along with the number of publications you have, because then the, I imagine there are some um, scientists who would love to spend their effort, you know, edu- doing education and bringing on more students and, you know, sharing their their passion for the, the topic with them. But they're not incentivized to do so because it's not how they get their money or they get their fame or whatever it is right so it's it's a it's an interesting thing and do you think that those type of initiatives would be interesting to have or should education just be its reward on its own that that you should do it if you love it and that's enough
1: well uh again, I think this is something uh, personal, so this is simply my opinion mm. uh I think that uh having the education in the research uh, curriculum if you want in the research career uh it is something good and uh, should be evaluated oh this is this is my opinion mm-hmm. uh, because I mean it also shows that you are able to um, guide the project, guide some students and uh, Perhaps be, you know, the principal investigator or something or the leader of of a project, you know. So you can build some expertise on supervising students that, for instance, you can't build if you're just alone working by yourself. Maybe you are publishing a lot of papers just Mm. because you are keep working on one simple subject, one single subject, and uh, you are the super expert of that subject, and you know you don't want to spend time like teaching other people, you are the expert and so on. So you, you want to publish. But on the other hand, you don't really build the ability of, of leading a project, of okay. uh, interacting with other people. And there are cases where it's not, not simple at all interacting with, with other mm-hmm. people because they have their own opinion. And sometimes it's different than your opinion, but you need to agree, I mean, before even starting discussing about the project and so on. So I I would say so. But again, and this is just my opinion. It would be nice to have both your opinion there.
0: Yeah, I think it's a very, very good point because, uh, yeah, I think you're right, you know, this this kind of, this shows also ability of, of guiding people or uh, even bringing forward your ideas because if you propose a project to a student and then it's successful, it's also a very good uh, mark in your CV as well if we want to think in, in that term about building your career. So that is true. You know, I always thought in a sort of, Passionate way, the way you're teaching, the way you're interacting with students, even younger. But you're right. It's also a way to show that you're building your career, that you have like kind of leadership skills. So, yeah, true. I never, I never thought in that respect. Uh, that's, that's, good. yeah,
2: because, because, uh, I mean, I, I agree with at least putting forward some. Other metric of uh identifying good scientists from from you know just not regular scientists um and because this whole publication thing while it's okay it's a number that they can they can measure it's not always the full picture of what people are involved with inside science so um, now whether or not including you know the number of students you mentored is the right metric I have no idea but at least something on the side of like the educational aspect uh, giving back to to the students or to the community in another form um, I think it's a good idea to to start trying to include but of course of what course the final so, yeah. what the final thing looks like, I also can't say, right? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah,
0: true. Of course, I mean, the problem is a bit, uh, in my opinion, also the weight that you put uh, these different uh, skills or activities, right? So for example, Mm. if you don't publish papers for uh, two, three years, is it the same as if you don't supervise students for two, three years? So I think it depends probably on the role that you are applying or the role that you want to do. Because, I don't know, if you work, for example, in a research institute, then maybe it's more important to have output to get some fundings and so on. This is very strong. If you work at university, maybe it's also good. Well, you know, but also what I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 hard to say. Exactly, it's, it's what, very hard but, to say. I, I'm yeah. not so sure. In fact. Yeah, yeah, but it's. I think it's
2: valuable to have the conversation. You know, to sort of like yeah, yeah. put put your ideas out there on this aspect, because uh, I I do think it's time for a bit of change on on how we evaluate a scientist. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. True. True. Okay, but well, that's a uh, very interesting, uh, Maurizio. I, I really appreciated our conversation. You brought forward very interesting uh, topics, uh, a lot of new topics for me, uh, at least. And uh, I'm glad that we met uh, already. And um, yeah, thank you again. Thank you, Aaron, as well for supporting the the conversation. Oh
2: no, it's very educational for me. I, I, yeah, yeah. I enjoyed <laughs> it a lot.
0: <laughs> I see. I see. Okay. <laughs> Okay, and if if even
2: just to if even just to listen to Luca's questions, you know, yeah,
0: yeah, it (laughs)
1: was (laughs) excellent. Okay. Well, thank you guys for inviting me. I mean, really enjoyed being being here and trying to sort of answer the question as much as possible in the simple simple terms and and uh, also try to sort of give also my opinion on on different subjects. This one we just just talk about so the um, teaching and supervising it was really a pleasure to have this discussion with you and really appreciate it
0: okay and then with this uh thank you again and see you soon um, yeah stay tuned